understand it's about him god gives us instruction on how we can worship him and as we worship him one of the necessary parts of worship uh, the ordinance as we'll see in just a moment that god gives us instruction for is what we call the lord's supper we're going to look at this thought here this morning. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 17. We'll read all the way through verse number 34 this morning. Now in this, I, uh, now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame that ye uh, that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if, you, uh, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come." Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you teach us your word. And God, I pray that you would give us guidance, that you would give us instruction. I pray that you would help us, please, to see the importance of the organization, the order that you place among for the Lord's Supper. And God, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Help us, please, to see the truth of what you give us. And God, I pray that if there's one that's watching, that as we teach and preach on the lord's supper if they've never put their faith in your broken body and in your shed blood the sacrifice in which you gave for us so we may have a home in heaven i pray that they will put their trust in jesus this morning for salvation we love you thank you for loving us now teach us and guide us in your word this morning and in jesus name amen you may be seated this morning My family and I have been in hundreds, no exaggeration, of different churches in our lifetime. We have seen many, many things go on in many, many different places of the world. We've enjoyed getting to see and to know so many different people from so many different walks of life. It's a blessing. It's incredible how God has is building his family, his church, his local churches, local families all around the world. It's incredible to see that. Most of the churches that we have been to have been Baptistic in doctrine. Uh, some we did not know were different, but mostly uh, the ones that we knew about, we went to a Baptistic doctrinal church. There is one commonality among all the many hundreds of Baptist churches that we've been to around the world. Baptist churches like to eat. 
We like to eat, don't we? <laughs> uh, we enjoy that. I don't, I don't know if you can call yourself a Baptist church and not like to eat. Uh, we enjoy that. We enjoy the fellowship. We enjoy the time together. We enjoy sitting together, eating and fellowshipping one with another. That's a good thing. I remember when my wife and I first started traveling and uh, to raise a living wage so we could come and be eventually your pastor here. And as we began our travels, this is before any, uh, before any of our boys were born, it was just Holly and I starting out, and we were new onto the trail of raising support and raising funds. And as we were doing so, we came across a missions conference we couldn't be there for the entire thing, but we were able to be there for uh, Saturday and a Sunday morning. They had services on Saturday night and then Sunday morning, and then supposed to be on Sunday night as well, but we had another meeting, and so we were going to leave right after the service on Sunday morning and travel to another church and have a service with them. And as we were there, we found out that they were going to have a fellowship meal, a Baptist breaking bread meal. Glory to God. An international mint meal and international meals, we've grown to love them. We have them here for Missions Conference and Missions Month as well. And we enjoy that, the nationalities and such that are represented. And you get to experiment and find out, okay, I like that food. If I go, if I go to that country and if I go to that country, I'll see if there's a plan B. Uh, if there's another option there. But it prepares your taste buds, does it not? And we enjoy that time. So we were looking forward to that, but we looked at the time frame and thought we may not have enough time to make it if we stayed for the meal to our service that night just because of the distance that we would have to travel that afternoon. And so we talked to the pastor and said, you know, we would love to stay for the meal and get to know the church a little bit, but we don't have time. He's like, oh, we want to make sure that you're cared for. He says, I tell you what, what about this? What if you took your meal, we, we fixed a plate, and you just got into the car and drove on? That way we know that your meal is cared for. I thought, okay, we could do that. It won't take very long just to go through the queue and to get our food and to continue. And so we happily accepted and said, yes, that's what we'll do. So Sunday morning service went and the end of the service came and it was time for the meal they put us up in front of the queue knowing that we would need to get onto the road as quickly as possible and we looked and there was a table spread uh, a table that was truly filled it was as long as from here all the way back to brother david and maybe longer and it was just packed full of food it was just incredible at all the things that they had and it all looked i emphasize that word looked wonderful we found out very quickly at that meal that there are some churches that can cook. We have a church that can cook. Then there are other churches that cannot cook. And it seems like there's no middle ground. It's, it's, it's all either all can or all can't. It doesn't seem like there's any middle ground there from our experience. We did not know that this would be our first experience to a church that cannot cook. It looked wonderful. And then my wife and I both reached for a nice roll. I mean, it just looked incredible. We both grabbed one because they looked so good. But as soon as both of our hands picked it up, it about broke our hands as the weight of that roll was just so heavy. I'm thinking, did they have extra supports underneath that table to keep that end of the table up? Those were some heavy, heavy rolls. And it progressed further from there. I love something called deviled eggs. No, I don't worship the devil in that way, but I do worship deviled eggs. They are wonderful. And uh, However, someone at that church thought it would be a good idea to put some tuna in that deviled egg. Uh, that did not fit uh, a match well. That was not a good idea at all. And it progressed worse and worse. Even something as simple as fried chicken. How can you mess up fried chicken? It still was not, it was not pleasant at all. We got onto the road, and thank God, uh, we were on the road as we ate that, for we started eating just a few bites, and we thought, oh, sorry, can't finish that. And then pretty soon it got to our whole plate and thought, you know what, let's stop at this petrol station and get a snack because we're just taking all this food and putting it in the bin. We can't handle this any longer. It was not good. That church could not cook. Hopefully, they've grown in that area, I don't know, over the years. But it's incredible at how we 
find fellowship and camaraderie around something as simple as food. You know, the church in Corinth was a Baptist church. How do I know that? Because Paul here addresses their meal. He says, I'm dressing you and the meals that you partake in. This Baptist church in Corinth was doing a few things that were a little odd, such that Paul actually addresses how they ate together. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 17. Notice how Paul begins this, this breaking of the ground into this meal. He says, now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. Okay, so Paul has just dealt with some sensitive, unpopular subjects here as he speaks of glory and about the women and men and their hair. And now he says, I'm not going to praise you anymore. <laughs> like the first 16 verses were very praiseworthy. <laughs> but now he speaks, so I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to be honest here. What you're doing in the meals is not good. I can't think of anything to praise you for in this area. Notice what he says. He says that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. That word come together is not like the assembly of an ecclesia, which is speaking of the gathering of the church. But this coming together is actually the Greek word, synerkomai, which means to get together for a specific purpose. And what was this specific purpose? They were voluntarily coming together to have a meal before having the Lord's Supper. They would have a meal and then they would partake in communion of the Lord's Supper, as we'll see in just a few moments. And Paul said, you're not getting together voluntarily for the better. You're not coming for a good reason. You're coming together for a really bad time. The time in which you're voluntarily coming and eating together is not a good time. It is not something that is praiseworthy. It is a struggle to even find something to compliment you about. Incredible thought there. Notice here, first of all, this morning, as he continues to think about breaking bread and about the fellowship around a meal, that he begins with the meal before the supper. This church, apparently before, of course, having the Lord's Supper, they would have a meal beforehand. This meal ended up being a blight or a bad and poor testimony for the church. Notice what this meal in, uh, uh, contained. In verse number 18, look at it with us and see the division that was come with this. Well, it says, for first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. That word divisions there is the word speaking of schisms. What is that speaking of? Well, an analogy that all of us would be very familiar with is if we go back in history to a time when Scotland had clans. They were one nationality, but think about it for just a moment. They, even though one nationality, there were many clans, and they would all fight once in one another, and some didn't want to be with others, and it was a time of where there was schisms, there was divisions, and this is what Paul is speaking of. You're of one family, but yet you're divided. You're, you are becoming clannish, as it were. You are becoming a clique, a clique type of a church. What do we mean when a clique type of a church? It means a church that is uh, a very much divided in the fact that when you fellowship, only one group could eat together, only one section of the church could uh, fellowship together, and you'd have this group here, and you have this group there, and you have this group over here, and none would want to intermingle with one another. For heaven forbid, someone speak to someone in that uh, in that area of the church, and it became something when someone would come together, a new believer, it would be almost a contentious time of, well, where do I sit? Where am I welcome? How sad that is. And yet this is how this church was. It was very clannish. It had a clique, as it were, many cliques 
that we're separating or fragmenting from the body of Christ. Notice in verse number 19, he continues, For there must be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest unto you. Now, when we see that word heresies, our initial thought is how we use that word today. How we would use that word today is speaking of a, a parent and a, uh, and a very clear uh, uh, teaching that is directly against truth. That's not what this word is speaking of, though. It's not a radical departure of truth. But rather, it is choosing to call what is Excuse me, it is, uh, it, it means, excuse me, I'm finding my vocabulary definition here. I'm looking at my notes and I'm confusing myself with my notes. It is a group that chooses to side on an opinion or a matter in an exclusion of others. So in other words, this heresies was, hey, look at what I believe, look at what I'm trusting. And this is speaking back to earlier in 1 Corinthians when the Bible was teaching that there were divisions among who was better preacher. Was it Apollos? Was it Paul? Was it Peter? And they would have some contentions with that. Well, the same type of thing was going on here. They were saying, look, this is my truth. This is what I adhere to. And if you adhere to what I think is right in this area, then you can come and you can be part of my group. It was a clannish type of mentality that was, do you think like I'm thinking? And if you think like I'm thinking, then you can be part, part of what I'm part of my meal, part of the fellowship together. The Bible speaks of this very same thing in Acts chapter 5, verse number 17. Notice what the Bible says. And the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. This is that same word as we see in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. Again, a, a, a heresy, choosing to side in an agreement. Notice what the Bible says, the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, which means jealousy, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. A church, a young church in Jerusalem was flourishing, was growing, and there was a sect, there was a heresy of the Sadducees that were becoming jealous of what was taking place in this church and what the growth and what was happening there and the name and the reputation that was growing for good. And they became jealous of this and the sect, this group of the Sadducees, not everyone, some were probably looking in amazement thinking, wow, can I learn from this? Some, the Holy Spirit may even have been encouraging their hearts that look, I'm for this, you can trust in the gospel in which these disciples were preaching. But then there was a sect, there was this division, there was this group of the Sadducees. Not everyone, but there was a group that were filled with jealousy. They were filled with indignation. And they wanted what was taking place among the church in Jerusalem. And they truly acted upon it. And that's what the Bible is speaking of here. It's speaking of a group, a part of the family of God that is dividing among maybe a preference, maybe an issue, maybe a preacher like Paul or Apollos. And we're saying, look, if you believe like this, if you think like I think, then you can fellowship with us together. It was something that was very chaotic. It was something that was very divisional and very unwelcoming. I mean, think about it for just a moment. You're coming to eat. You're a new believer in Christ. And as you come into the church, as you look to sit down, you maybe put your a, a meal down at a table and suddenly someone says, what do you think about Paul? Well, I don't know. I got saved just recently. I don't, who, who is Paul? You can't eat here then. You got to eat over there. That's what was going on. It's the type of thing that was taking place. Do you like carpet or hardwood? Do you like carpet? You can't eat here. The hardwood group is over there. Uh, you know, just incredibleness. That's the type of thing that was going on. It was incredible at how the chaos that was enveloping among just a simple meal before what was supposed to be a somber and a solemn time of remembering the Lord 
Notice the chaos that was going into this. Look at verse number 20, please. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Again, he clarifies here, in case we are wondering which meal he's speaking of. He's not speaking of the Lord's Supper. He's speaking of that meal beforehand. For in eating, verse number 21, everyone taketh before his own supper, and one is hungry. So Paul here clarifies, as we'll continue in just a moment, that people would bring from their own home to come and to eat together. Well, here's how it was a bad blight and testimony to others. Just like every church, all of us have different means. All of us have different finances. Some families could bring a bit for their families. Some could not. And so there were some families that wanted to be a part of the meal, but then they noticed that there were some families that brought nearly everything in their pantry, everything in their cupboards. They had steak and caviar and lobster and you name it. They had it all. And then there were some that brought just as little as they could because that's what they had. They didn't have a lot. And so there were some that were bringing the spread of everything in their cupboards. And then there were some who were going without, were hungry. They wanted to be part of the fellowship time, but they were not allowed that food because they weren't part of that group. They weren't part of that schism of the church. They weren't part of that clan in the church. And they couldn't partake. And some were coming to the meal and leaving hungry. Jesus never promoted that type of behavior. When Jesus fed the 5,000, everyone went away full. No matter if they were financially well off or if they had absolutely nothing to their name. No matter who they were or how old they were, all of them went away fed. When Jesus fed the 4,000, the same thing. When people came to Christ, no matter what their status in society, no matter what they could afford or what they could not, no matter who they were, they went away knowing that they had been fed. They had been given a fair and adequate treatment among others. This church, however, in Corinth was coming to the point of others partaking in a gluttonous type of behavior and others going without but it gets worse. The Bible says, and one is hungry and another is drunken. If things couldn't become any more chaotic, it was come to a point in which people were bringing alcohol to church and they were actually becoming drunk before the Lord's Supper that they would partake in after this. How serious and how wicked this would have been a time in which truly a chaotic and discontented and a disjointed meal together, again, a time that was supposed to be encouraging and helping one another was becoming fragmented and chaotic time, a time that was more about what group you are belonging in and what economics you had more than what the fellowship of God desired and wanted. Notice how Paul addresses this in verse number 22. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What say I to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Paul says, I can't compliment you on this type of behavior. He said, this is very much against what Christ is for. God wants us to help and to encourage one another. And as we look at the book of Acts and you see the church in Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that they gave and they helped one another. And they were a church that was willing to come together as a family, saying there's a family member of the church of God that's struggling. How can we help them? How can we be an encouragement to them? How can we be a blessing to them? It was much of a teamwork rather than what this church in Corinth, what it had become where it was, look at what I can provide. Did you see that steak I brought? I noticed you just had some, some lunch meat. I like my steak. How was that ham? 
How was that cheese sandwich? How was that little bit of, uh, of bread that you brought? Did you see what I had? How hurtful this would have been. And yet this is what was going on in the church. This is how serious things were going in the blight in which the testimony was for the church. This was hurting the name of Christ. It was hurting the testimony of the church. And Paul says, I can't praise you in this. He says, I praise you not. You're hurting it. You're hurting the name of Christ. You are showing a despising or a shame or a hatred for even God's own body. So Paul addresses the meal before the, before the supper. Now, he participates or shows the participating in the Lord's Supper. Look at verse number 23, please, with me. For I have received the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Paul transitions now from the meal that was going on before the Lord's Supper to now the actual partaking of the Lord's Supper. He begins to address this as this is a time in which should be very solemn, which should be very sacred. The Bible teaches us that Paul or that uh, uh, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. If you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see an account of where Jesus says exactly what Paul states in the following verses, and we'll get to it in just a moment. It's interesting, just kind of a side note, a small rabbit trail that you see the direct quote and the direct account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But when you come to the book of John, you see the situation, you see the meal, but you don't see the same instruction in John. Rather, you see God himself preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. John shows the same situation, and truly he's not foregoing that through the inspiration of the Spirit of God. However, it's interesting that he focuses upon what Christ said rather than what he did. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see this account. We see Jesus stating exactly what we have here. Look at verse number 24 as we see the picture of the Lord's Supper. The Bible says, When he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. What is he speaking that when he break it, what was he speaking of? He was speaking of something in which I'm holding here, bread. It would have been a loaf of bread, very much similar to this. It would have been, uh, I believe it very well, uh, 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 very well probably was unleavened bread because of the time of that feast in which they had. But nevertheless, for sake of illustration, it was bread, and it would have been a loaf of bread like this. And the Bible tells us that Jesus used it as a picture, a symbol, something in which is common to all man. All of us here know what bread is. All of us know what it's like to break bread. And it was supposed to be a very common reminder, a common thing that we rethink or think upon and fall our minds are drawn back to as the bread was broken. As we think about that bread that was broken, the Bible teaches us that Jesus himself, his body was broken. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was beaten as he would go to the cross. But not just beaten with just a fist even though that was the case but it was also with a whip called a cat of nine tails a horrible cruel instrument of pain it was a whip that had nine tails just as the name implies and in each one of those strands stretching out from the main whip there would be pieces of glass and metal and stone embedded into it, sharp and made to inflict as much pain and punishment as possible. 
that whip would be taken and would be sliced around the uh, the uh, prisoner's back or yea, even their front side. And as it would do so, it was long enough where he would reach around to the front of the stomach as well as to the back. And the uh, soldiers were trained and would become so professional in afflicting punishment that as they pulled back that whip, that it would rip large sh- chunks of flesh literally right over the prisoner's body. Horrible. His body was broken for us. Psalms twenty-two seventeen relays how serious this beating was. In Psalms 22, speaking of the crucifixion of Christ, the Bible says, I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. The Bible tells us Jesus could look down and he could see the very bones in his body through the broken flesh, through his broken body. How severe and how cruel of a punishment. And yet that's exactly what Jesus endured. The Bible tells us that not only was he beaten, but he had a crown of thorns placed upon his brow. That crown of thorns wasn't simply just a few rose thorns, but it would be something that uh, uh, long, long thorns that would be pushed deeply into the brow of the, the one being mocked and ridiculed. Many people think it was a thorn that could have been an inch to two inches long. Could you imagine a two to five centimeter thorn being shoved in a crown deeply upon your brow? Certainly poking through the flesh around your forehead and even into your cheeks and ears. Maybe even penetrating, depending on how the thorns were placed, into the eye, into the cheek cavity around it. How severe and how horrible it would have been to have that crown of thorns placed and then that crown of thorns being pushed and beaten upon your own head. That's what Jesus endured. The Bible tells us that his beard will be plucked off of his face. Could you envision the pain and the suffering that Jesus endured? The Bible teaches us that the punishment would continue. His body would continue to be mutilated. He, of course, would carry the cross to a hill called Golgotha or Calvary. The blood loss was massive at this point. It was weak and feeble. The Bible teaches us that as he was helped to that hill of Golgotha, his hands would be outstretched as he would be placed upon a cross where nails would be driven into his hands and into his feet. Just as Psalms 22 foretold. As the Bible says, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. He, of course, would be placed upon that cross, upon those nails. (coughs) The Bible teaches us that he would then have a spear pierce his side as he hung on that cross. The Bible foretells this very thing in Zechariah chapter 12, verse number 10. When the Bible says, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And he shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. How cruel this punishment was. How broken his body was. And Jesus used used bread as an illustration of this. As a reminder of the pain and punishment that Jesus endured. By a simple act of taking the bread and breaking it. As the bread was broken, 
it, of course, would relay that it would never be the same. It would be fragmented, broken. They would take this loaf, and they would break a piece, and then they would pass it to someone else. I want to have my wife take a piece here as well, just to show an illustration here. And we could pass it along and such and fragment it further, but you get the idea here. That one, it was a picture of the broken body of Christ and the fragmentation that took place for us. His body was broken for us. But watch this. As they broke it, the disciples partook of that which was broken. In other words, as they broke it, it was a powerful symbol that as they broke the bread, as they broke that piece, they were one of the guilty ones, just like you and I, who led to the brokenness of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper, as we partake of unleavened bread, picturing again the sinless body of Christ, as we take a piece of that, it illustrates our guiltiness, just like the guiltiness of the disciples, in that because of our sins, Jesus Christ was broken on the cross. Just because of our sins and our transgressions, Jesus Christ went to Calvary. Because of what we have done, we caused the suffering and the pain of Jesus Christ. We are not guiltless. We are partakers in that. And what a powerful and sobering moment in which we look and we see in seriousness the body of Christ was broken because of me. And it's broken because of you. How serious it is of sin. So often people laugh at sin, but sin broke the very body of Jesus Christ. And we are guilty of it. Jesus gave us a powerful illustration, a powerful reminder each and every time we partake of the Lord's Supper of our sinfulness and of our partaking of that that brought the suffering to our Savior. But Jesus didn't just take of the bread. The Bible teaches us in verse number 25 in our text this morning, after the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. The Bible teaches us because of the brokenness of his body, his blood would be poured out. The Bible tells us in Psalms 22 and verse number 14, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Oh, the blood that was shed for you and me. And thank God it was. Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 22. The Bible says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, is no remission it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin 
unto salvation. Because of the blood that was shed, Jesus Christ took his blood and he went into a place not made with hands, but a place made by God himself. He went into the holy of holies. He went into that mercy seat there on heaven and he took his shed blood and he took that shed blood and he put it upon the mercy seat of heaven and it is a continual reminder to God himself of the sacrifice that was paid, of what was taken and paid for for our sins. For without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin and that blood was shed for you it was shed for me thank god he was willing to pay that price and that is what this cup the cup in which jesus christ took and it would have been a cup that of course would be different than this but certainly a cup filled with juice a cup that was filled with unfermented juice something that was of the fruit of the vine the bible says something that was pure and clean showing the pure and clean blood of jesus christ that was about to be shed and they would take this cup and they would partake of this cup they would sip of this cup and continue passing this cup around and they would do so why to illustrate that we are also partakers of it just like we are partakers of the bread just like we are guilty of uh, guilty of shedding or breaking the body of Christ we are guilty of shedding the blood of Jesus Christ it's a powerful sobering symbol it's a powerful reminder it is what we call an ordinance something in which truly is to recall our hearts and minds and to give us the sober seriousness of what we have done my friends Jesus Christ died for you and he died for me thank God he did he was willing to lay down his life. He was willing to have his body broken and his blood shed to be the price that would be paid for our propitiation, to be paid for our redemption. Thank God he was willing to be the Redeemer. The Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 26, the purpose of it. Notice what it is. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, notice these words, ye do show the lord's death till he come as we partake of the broken of the broken bread and the juice we are showing whom we have believed you see when one gets baptized this is another ordinance in which jesus christ has given us the one ordinance being baptism baptism of course is done by immersion and it is identifying us with Jesus' death. It's showing that we have trusted in the price in which Jesus has paid for us. But the Lord's Supper, that in which Paul was speaking of and addressing and bringing order to in the church in Corinth, it helps us and reminds us of the suffering in which Jesus has done. How powerful that price is. How important that price is. And we're prone to forgetting, are we not? How often do we forget what happened just a few years ago? Last year, because of the momentous time and being fresh upon us, we know that Liverpool won the Premier League. We understand that. They won the championship and how wonderful and exciting that is. But let me ask you, 10 years ago, won that same championship there might be one or two that might be able to recall it but most of us would look and say i would have to ask google <laughs> i'd have to look it up do some research i i don't know why because we forget and this is something in which we are to partake in as a church notice the bible is for as often as you eat Paul never tells us how much or how often we should. I believe as a church we should do it often enough that it recalls our attention to it. In our constitution it states that we are to do so at least once a quarter and we try to stick with that. We've not been as good with it in previous years, but we've tried to except for of course this last year with all the things that have gone on. But Lord willing here in just a short time we'll partake of this We'll enjoy the Lord's Supper once again and be that picture, that remembrance of the Lord's death. Notice, please, about how one should prepare for this time. 
Paul relays the seriousness and the, sol the solemn nature of the Lord's Supper. But notice how he teaches us to prepare for this very sacred time. In verse number 27, he says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. That word unworthily speaks of lightly or irreverently. Speaks of just a time of, oh, look, I got some bread, I got some juice, I got a little bit of a meal. Nothing reverent about it, nothing seriousness in mind at it, but just a flippant thing like, it doesn't matter if we do it or not. After all, I just had a big meal. I'm really not that hungry. But taking the Lord's Supper lightly, this is not a big deal. It's nothing in which I should be focused upon. Paul states that this type of thinking shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that blood and drink of that cup. Paul states that if we were to partake into the Lord's Supper flippantly or dismissively, lightly, that we are guilty of the body and blood of Christ. It's an interesting statement that. For we see this same word usage when Jesus was about to be crucified. In Matthew chapter 26, look at these word, verses with me. In verse number 65, notice what the Bible says. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, Ye, or he has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we witnesses? Behold, now we have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? The Pharisees were looking for a way in which to condemn Christ. They, look at the, they looked at the way he spoke about testifying that he is God as blasphemy. We know that he is God. It was no blasphemy. It was an admission of truth. The Pharisees vehemently wanting to kill Christ found something in which they thought was condemnable. And notice how they answered. Notice these words. They answered and said, He is guilty of death. That word guilty there is a legal term, just like in verse number 27 of our text. That word guilty is indicting. It is condemning Christ that he should have died for the crimes in which he did not commit. It is a con condemnation upon Jesus Christ himself. Paul uses the seriousness of the Lord's Supper, stating that if you take of it unworthily, flippantly, certainly going back to verse number 21, in which people were drunken and people were being gluttonous at the meal before it and taking it as, oh, this is, I can barely eat another bite. I don't know if I can partake in the Lord's Supper here, dismissing it and taking it so uh, haphazardly the bible says paul himself stated that this was just as if you are one of the pharisees condemning jesus christ stating he should have died when he is guiltless of all that is the seriousness of the light spirit of taking the lord's supper unworthily Notice Paul says in verse number 22, but let a man examine himself. This is so important. He says, let a man examine himself. I've been in a lot of churches, as I said a moment ago. And there are some churches that believe in a diff some different types of communion or the Lord's Supper. One of which is called closed communion closed communion or closed lord's supper speaks of one speaks of uh, of a time in which only a church member can participate and even before that church member can participate that church member must be in good standing 
if the church sees in what their heart and mind is uh, is un, uh, is breaking a worthiness to partake of the Lord's Supper, they state you cannot partake in it. You must either leave the room or you must sit in a corner somewhere or you must sit in one place uh, or you cannot partake of the Lord's Supper. You are not allowed to do so. I've been in one of those services. I was the guest speaker. And the church decided to have the Lord's Supper. And because we were not a member of that church, we were asked to leave the room. The spirit was that of a spirit that was looking for a cause in which to find fault and judgment with another. I do not believe this type of a spirit is a gospel-centered spirit. I believe it is a spirit that is promoting the uh, 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 performance of others and wanting to bring a critical spirit and judgment to that of others. I don't believe it's a healthy spirit at all. I don't think it's something that would please Christ. But this is one type of communion in which churches close themselves off to those who passed the test in their eyes and in their heart then there are others that practice an open communion of come no matter if you're saved or not no matter if you believe in jesus christ or not but as long as you're here you can partake in the lord's supper anyone is welcome to do it some take this as far as stating that you must take it as part of the open communion because the Lord's uh, Supper, the bread and the juice, transubstantiate into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And begin to teach that this is a part of even worthiness to earn one's way to heaven. That is not biblical either. The Bible tells us Jesus passed bread. He passed the fruit of the vine. The disciples did not take a bite of Jesus Christ. He did not do that. His body was broken on the cross. His body was broken in punishment leading up to the cross. The disciples did not eat the very flesh and drink the very blood of Christ. That's not what the Bible teaches. And you will not find that in Scripture. Transubstantiation is not biblical. And yet this type of an open communion and there are other things that we could speak of for sake of time we won't that go into this very thinking i don't believe that is biblical either and there's a third type something called close communion and this is where we are as a church what does a close communion mean it means we examine ourselves just as Paul stated. I don't examine your heart because I don't know your heart. You don't know mine. But we examine ourselves, and as a man examines himself, he asks the Holy Spirit of God, is there something between me and you? Is there something that is prohibiting me from taking of the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience, with a clear heart? And the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit of God exposes or shows us in our heart whether or not we should partake in that and that's between god and the individual this is between god and the recipient this i believe is where paul was speaking of as a man examines himself and asks god how you would have to partake and to participate in this lord's supper how important it is that we understand the doctrinal statement of of examining oneself and partaking of the Lord's Supper properly. That's why we have a time before the Lord's Supper of confession. A time in which we reflect upon ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit, have I sinned? What sins are between me and you that I'm not confessed? And we have an opportunity to get right with the Lord and to confess those sins and forsake those sins. And partake of it knowing that we are close to the Lord. Not perfect, but we're striving to be close to our Savior.
I believe that is a spirit in which we see 1 Corinthians 11 speaking of. A heart that is wanting to draw near to God and to keep a sin account that is very short between God and us. Look at verse number 29. The Bible says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation, that word damnation speaks of judgment, not discerning, recognizing or perceiving the differences of the Lord's body. In other words, it's a time in which when one drinks or part, uh, drinks and eats of the Lord's Supper, that as they do so, and they do so knowing that there's something between them and the Savior, the Bible says that that is an unworthily type of approach, and the Bible teaches us that it brings judgment upon our, oneself. If we are not willing to confess and to forsake our sins, God brings judgment upon us upon yea partaking of that and paul speaks of how that takes place look at verse number 30 i'm hastening here for this cause many are weak and sickly among you the bible tells us that some who have partaken in the lord's supper unworthily who have chosen to do so knowing that there was sin done so light lightly done so irreverently the bible says there are some in the church that are sick that are dealing with health concerns or health diseases because that is part of the judgment of god for taking the lord's supper light lightly this is how serious god takes the lord's supper it's a serious matter between us and the lord this is a somber time notice the bible says in many sleep this doesn't mean that they are now able to sleep for 12, 14, 16, 18, or 22 hours in a day. It doesn't mean that. It means a permanent sleep. It means a sleep of death. The Bible teaches us that there were some in the church of Corinth that even closed their eyes in death because of how irreverently they took the Lord's Supper. This is serious between God and man. God does not take this time lightly. It is a somber time and a serious time. Paul continues as he helps us to examine ourselves so we do not partake in the Lord's Supper unworthily. Notice what he says in verse number 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. I was reminded of an illustration of two sons that were left alone for a time in, at home as their parents decided to go out for a time. They had a guest with them, and they were out and enjoying that time. And those sons were at home playing and doing some things that their parents instructed them. However, during that time in their playing, there was a vase that got knocked off of a cabinet and broke. The boys disappeared. The parents came home. The house was quiet, too quiet for two boys. And they began looking and wondering where their boys were. They walked into a room and saw the vase laying on the ground broken. But as they looked at this vase broken, there was a note on top. They picked up the note and it said this We are very sorry. We have broken the vase. We have sent ourselves to bed for the rest of the night because of our silliness that broke this vase. So what do those parents do? Well, certainly they did what every parent would do. They rushed upstairs, drew those boys out of bed, and let them know for sure that they were seriously in, seriously in judgment. No, that's not what they did the judgment was dismissed. Why? Because they had judged themselves. Said we did wrong and we're bringing judgment upon ourselves. We're paying the price for the wrong we did. That's what the Bible is speaking of here. That's how Paul is speaking of us judging ourselves. Recognizing we've done wrong and correcting that wrong. So often we confess our sins to God and we forget to bring ourselves in judgment. To make those wrongs right. To tell your 
husband or your wife sorry. To tell your child sorry. To tell your parents you're sorry. To pay back the money in which you inadvertently took or did not pay enough or so on and so on. But to make it right, God says we need to judge ourselves, that we should not be judged. But if we leave it to God, notice what the Bible says in verse number 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. If we neglect our sin and refuse to care for it ourselves, God will choose to chasten us as his children. He corrects his children. The Bible teaches us in Revelation chapter 3, verse number 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The correction that God brings to ourselves is often much more severe than if we would have chastened ourselves or judged ourselves. Because God knows exactly what it needs to be done to correct us. God doesn't want us to do that. He would much rather us correct the wrongs. Make those wrongs right. God wants us to come to the Lord's table prepared, ready to do so with a right heart and a right spirit. And then Paul concludes in verse number 33 and 34 and we're done. Notice what he says. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, come ye together to eat. Paul now is taking our minds back to the meal before the Lord's Supper. Tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home and come not together into condemnation. Paul states some very practical things. It's incredible as I was thinking and preparing and studying for this thing and how detailed God is and how careful and how much he is concerned about every area of our life. You know, God loves us enough that he wants every area to please him. Every area. No matter how small or trivial we think it is, God says, I want every area of your life to glorify and to honor me. Paul, as he speaks of that meal before the Lord's Supper, says to tarry for one for one. What is he speaking of? He says, wait for one another, anticipate one another. He says the meal should not be done so chaotic that you bring the food and people are just diving into it. People aren't waiting and being respectful for one another, but to do so orderly. You say, why do we queue to partake of a meal together? And we try to make it organized and have it in such a way where everyone can have a part and go through and get, why do we have it? Because the Bible teaches us that. To tarry for one another, wait for one another, anticipate, look for one another, look out for others. Well, this individual may not be able to bring as much. I'm going to bring a little extra. Not because we're putting one down, but because we're thinking of them and want them to have some extra. They want them, we want them to partake in the meal. We want them to go away full just as us. And we do that so well. <laughs> we go away full here, do we not? Paul tells us to be courteous and to be mindful of each other. To be respectful of each other in the meal. Paul tells us that if we are so hungry as we come to the fellowship meal that we cannot wait to eat something at home. How simple is that? Have you ever been there though? You, you, you've been, you're so hungry, you can you can just barely wait to get to that food. Paul says if you can't restrain yourself, if you're going to attack that uh, piece of beef like a ravenous lion, he says eat a little bit of something at home before you come. <laughs> He says, be mindful, be, uh, be thoughtful of others, be considerate. He says, if you need to eat a little bit before you come, do so. And then Paul says, and the rest will I set in order when I come. There were other things that were going on in this church that was making this meal and the Lord's Supper chaotic. A time in which it was being not well respected and something that was not taken respectfully. Paul says those things all set in order. There are other things in which 
needed to be done in order to bring order to this church, order to the meal. God thinks highly of a church. He loves the church. He died for the church. And he wants the church to be something that pleases God and shows a wonderful testimony of a family that is working together, not only to care for our own, but to remember the Christ who died for us. May we be mindful of this. This is just as much part of worship as singing songs, the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, as baptism. These are all vital parts of the worship service that as a church we need to be mindful of. May I encourage us this morning to remember Christ. Thank God for the sacrifice that He paid. If you're here this morning and you have some doubts, concerns, whether or not Christ is your Savior, may I encourage you to put your faith and trust in Him. To trust Him. He died on the cross for you. He went to Calvary for you. And if you are saved, May we take what is said and grow and mature and teach others these simple truths to help the next generation enjoy a service to the Lord that is done decently in order and gives honor and glory to our great God. Let's be a church that glorifies our God in all of 